0: Greetings and welcome to Currents, a new podcast hosted through the Edmund W. Gordon Institute for Urban and Minority Education, known familiarly as Yumi. This podcast is the result of hours of thinking and discussion of how Yumi would enter this medium. The title Currents best captures the flow of ideas and the formation of knowledge, which often shifts and changes, like currents in bodies of water. It also allows us to enter a discussion about current events to have the benefit of scholarly knowledge and research without the lag time of publication. And finally, I would like Currents to connect scholars to their work and what inspires them. This podcast will provide a space where a network of scholars and stakeholders can share their views on current events, influences on their work, and the inspiration of their lives in the creation of knowledge. I am Professor Callie Waite, an affiliate faculty member in UMI, and a historian in the program in History and Education here at Teachers College. I've often described the work of historians as not only studying the past, but preserving the present and hopefully shaping the future with our knowledge. But more simply put, historians are storytellers, and so I'm here to share the stories of our TC faculty beyond what their publications tell us. In this deeply fraught and complex time where education and knowledge are critically important, it is imperative that we hear how scholars are connected to their work and its relevance to our current challenges. And so I'm excited for the conversations in this series. And our first guest is Dr. Erica N. Walker, Clifton Brewster Upton, Professor of Mathematics Education and the Director of UMI. Dr. Walker's full biography and selected list of publications is on our podcast page, accessible through the Yumi website. To list her many accomplishments would take up a significant part of this podcast. So with no further ado, let me begin our conversation with Dr. Walker. And I should also share that we have known each other since graduate school. So it is a real treat to welcome not just my colleague, but my friend, Dr. Walker. So Dr. Walker, welcome to our inaugural podcast. And I think we're gonna jump straight to it. You're a professor of mathematics education, but I often think of you as sort of a Renaissance woman because of your interest in the arts as well and the fact that you minored in Spanish during your college years. And I mention this just to frame the breadth of your work and experience. But let's start out by just talking about how you came to Yumi and the pathway to being the director. Thank you so much, Dr. Waite,
1: uh, for having me on this wonderful podcast. It's um, such a great, great idea that you had. I'm just happy to be part of it. Um, I came to UMI by coming to Teachers College as a postdoctoral fellow. And um, the person who was acting as dean at that time was Edvin Gordon, who had founded UMI and um, was a um, you know, sort of still, you know, taking care of it. Um, and so as a postdoc, I had the opportunity to work with Dr. Gordon on a number of projects related to mathematics education, which is my my area. So um, I've always had an affinity for sort of groupings of people with shared interests, shared ideas, shared passions. And a lot of the folks in in Yumi that I have met over the years were great mentors. They were great scholars, you know, students who came through Yumi, and it's always just been a special a special place. Um, so I was always you know sort of involved. Um, it ebbed and flowed over the years. As you know, as a academic, you have different priorities at different times. Um, but in the last, I would say seven or eight years, I I sort of reconnected to Yumi and um, eventually became the director.
0: And so I just say a little bit more about how you made the decision to become the director, because you were still teaching full time. You were the department chair. What was it that drew you um, to Yumi and taking on this position of leadership?
1: It was, um, A little bit of a uh, campaign, I think I can say that publicly. (laughs) So uh, the previous director, um, our friend and colleague, Ernest Morrell, um, was making a transition himself. You know, I thought about it for a a long time because I was, um, I had just accepted the role as department chair um, in my Department of Mathematics, Science and Technology. And I knew it would be a heavy lift, but I thought it was an important lift. I could see the work that previous directors of Yumi had done. Yumi's had about, I think, eight or ten directors. And each director has put their own special spin on Yumi. But one thing has, I think, remained constant over the years. And that's the emphasis on sort of building an academic community, um, developing scholars, junior scholars, senior scholars, um, having a space for people to think about engaged research and do research that's really important to them. I always have valued that and have appreciated it and benefited from it. Um, and so when I uh, was offered the position as director, I saw it as a real opportunity to continue the work, but also to add my special spin. Um, each director has had different interests. Um, Ernest was interested in um, you know, literacy and um, English education. Uh, you know, Dr. Gordon, who founded Yumi, is a psychologist. Um, there was a woman who directed Yumi, uh, Marguerite Ross Barnett, who was a political scientist. So when you look at Yumi's sort of trajectory of research projects and agendas, you can see these sort of shining through. Um, and as you pointed out, my own work is, although centered in mathematics education, quite interdisciplinary. And so I would say that Yumi has um, delved a bit more deeply into STEM and mathematics in particular, but we still have an emphasis on history, literacies, other subjects as well. And I'm really proud of that. I think um, it helps people feel very connected to the Institute. Like any faculty member in any department can feel that Yumi could be a space for them.
0: So I want to pick up on something that you were saying, because I think An important thread that's going through this that hasn't been stated is the whole idea of Yumi as a community, and not just a community within Teachers College, but a community that draws from all different kinds of disciplines, because we can often be very much centered in our discipline, very siloed. But Yumi has been around since, I think, and you can correct me, is it 1972 or 1974?
1: I think around 1973, actually. Oh, so
0: I, there we go. I gave you a sandwich (laughs) in there. But the point is, is it was about, it was also about connecting um, academic life to what we might call real life or the life of the community, right? Because it's the Institute for Urban and Minority Education. Teachers College is centered in Harlem. So it was very much everyone's work, as I've seen in my decades at Teachers College, has been connected to the community. So now here's the big Magilla question. Knowing you as I do, you are a visionary. And there is a way in which you are fearless in pushing forth your ideas and also a little bit tenacious. And so I'm curious to know, what is your vision for Yumi now when we think about our current situation, Um, the pandemic, um, inequity in schools, all of these things. And so I'm curious to know, what is your vision for Yumi for the future? It's a great question.
1: My vision for Yumi is really centered in its history, its traditions, but also its, um, within its history and its traditions, its ability to innovate, to incubate, to support, to really highlight great ideas that faculty, students, staff have about the state of education considered very broadly. It's really about education and well-being. So when you look at UMI's history, it was doing things like you know public access television programs work in schools, work in libraries, work with community organizations. Um, one of the things that I'm very proud of is when I first came on board as director, we started a collaboration with the National Urban League around equity in education and did a number of things around that. Um, we also have developed connections to um, uh, entities at Columbia University, including the Wallach Art Gallery and the Double Discovery Center. So I think again, it's about this sort of shared vision and mission of improving education as we consider it broadly for you know generations of learners. And so I think that is, is, is encapsulated in what Yumi is and continues to be. It's a very, it's very much an intergenerational space where. You know, some of our graduate students who come through Yumi, graduate, become faculty, community leaders, um, researchers, um, educators themselves, you know, they carry out this work. So I think of Yumi as seeding all these wonderful people who've had all these ideas and who've had the opportunity to have them be incubated in a warm, sort of nurturing, rigorous you know, research environment. Um, that's what Yumi did in a lot of ways for me. It was one of the first sort of research projects I worked on. Um, I had mentors who were affiliated with Yumi who weren't at Teachers College. Um, you know, I learned a lot about how, how do you run a large project? How do you get people to work together? <laughs> that's really important. Um, people who have shared interests but you know, may not be, let's just say, you know, the best of friends. So how do you keep uh this community supportive and welcoming for all? So I think going forward and, and given the times that we're in, you know, we've all had to adjust so um rapidly um in a lot of ways to the constraints created by the pandemic. Um so a lot of our Activities have gone remote, you know, virtual. We're doing this podcast remotely, um, but in some ways, that challenge has presented new opportunities. We're able to deliver, you know, professional development in a different way. We're able to record sessions in a different way, and people can play them on demand when time allows. You know, before when we were, at, you know, in person doing things, you couldn't do that. You know, people can join meetings from around the country. Um, In a way, you know, everyone's equal because everyone's on Zoom. And so while I miss, you know, being um, in person and being able to run into you in the hall, Callie, for example, and have our great conversations about history or art or mathematics, um, you know, we're still able to capture some of that. And um, I always like to check in with our UMI students to make sure that we are still doing the work that is important and that we, that we want to be doing. And, uh, on my latest, uh, sort of survey that I, that I asked our Yumi students to complete, so many of them said, I'm prompted, you know, I so value this community in the pandemic that we're able to come together. You know, one student said, I haven't actually met anyone in person yet, but I still feel very supported and welcomed by Yumi." And I think that's a great testament to, um, you know the work that we're doing and the and and the way that we are in the world and what we bring to the world.
0: Great. That was really wonderful and I want to pick up on a couple of of pieces again that people forget about academic work is that it can be really isolating. So the sense of community and the sense of apprenticeship and mentorship and the fact that you talked about it being intergenerational is more important than people realize because all of these things help us to do our work. And as academics and as professors, our job is to teach, but our job is also to create knowledge. And what that means is how we're thinking about ideas and putting new things into the world, which gives me a perfect pivot or segue into asking, what are you working on now? What is your current project beyond just directing Yumi?" Because I know a lot of times, um, as you like to say, um, I just want to have my little thoughts. They're never little, but I think of it as sort of the having of great ideas. So, what are the great ideas or one um, that's percolating now that you're excited about?
1: <laughs> well, um, you know, for years, and you know this about me, Callie, because you were kind of front and center for the start of it. Um, I did a study of black American mathematicians, and I interviewed mathematicians, I did some archival research, and you know, I consulted with Dr. Waite, our resident expert historian, to you know, try to do a good job because I'm, I'm not a historian and I wanted to do these, these narratives and these stories justice. And just the process, and this is what I think we sometimes don't consider when we're doing research, It's not just about the research and the data, the process of doing the research. So I remember interviewing people, and I was on my sabbatical, and I would go down to Atlanta, where I'm from, to visit my family. And, you know, my niece and nephew were always very interested in what I was doing. Like, why did I live in New York? They were probably, you know, 9, 10 at the time. You know, why did I live in New York? What was Auntie doing? (laughs) You know, who was she talking to on the phone for hours? Who was she going to, to fly off and visit to interview? And so I would tell them, you know, these stories about these mathematicians, and they were, you know, transfixed. They wanted to know more. And so that process of doing those interviews and talking to my my little niece and nephew about them, it opened up a vista that I had not really considered, which was, you know, kids are very interested in these stories um, in a way that I had not Predicted. Because I'm talking to these mathematicians about, you know, how they came to be mathematicians. I'm talking to them about, you know, their schooling and, you know, their, 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 the time they spend with families doing math. And they had, the mathematicians would tell stories that were so appealing to younger people too, not just fellow mathematicians, not just adults. And so I remembered that in the back of my mind, and I remember talking to my, my older sister about it, and she said, oh, you need to write some children's books. You know, these, you know, the kids are really into it. They're very interested. So I just kept that in the back of my mind, and you know, I finished the project. I ended up writing the book, you know, Beyond Banneker, Black Mathematicians in the Paths to Excellence. But I always remembered um, that these stories are interesting to kids. I need to do something with that. And so in my conclusion chapter, as you know, many researchers and academics do, you put all the ideas you have that you didn't get to in the paper or the book. So if you read the conclusion chapter beyond Banneker, I say a whole lot of things about where this research could go next. And that was a long way of telling you what I'm doing now. So the, the project is continuing, and I have a National Science Foundation grant a three-year National Science Foundation grant um, for a project called um, Storytelling for Mathematics Learning and Engagement. (laughs) So I've gone back to some of the same mathematicians. Um, I'm working with a co-PI, Robin Wilson, who's a mathematician out in California, um, who shares interests in bringing the lives of mathematicians to young people. We're partnering with a curriculum company And what we're doing is we're collecting video narratives from mathematicians where they're telling stories. We're asking them, you know, to respond to certain prompts and they're telling stories about their learning. And these stories are going to be embedded in um, a mathematics curriculum, a K through six, I think, maybe K through eight mathematics curriculum. And we're going to, you know, see how that goes, do some research on it, but eventually these video narratives that we're collecting and editing down into sort of short vignettes will be in a publicly available sort of database. So anyone can, you know, my vision is still evolving on this, you know, click on a link and hear a mathematician talking about being in an algebra class or doing math with their family or playing mathematical games. I just feel like When I think back to my niece and nephew asking me questions about who these mathematicians were, what their struggles might have been in becoming a mathematician, um, kids learned a lot from this. Teachers learned a lot from it, too, actually. They learned a lot about pedagogy and new ways of explaining concepts. So it's a very interesting study. I'm very excited about it, and I'm tremendously Gratified that, you know, the NSF funded it and we're going to continue to go for more um, funding for it. But it's an exciting project. And, you know, I have doctoral students working with me from UMI, from the department. We have these collaborators. It's just an exciting time.
0: It sounds great. And of course, I have to, again, uh, talk about Beyond Banneker and make sure that uh, people take a look at it. Um, it's very funny. I want to share this story. Um, when we were working together, uh, to write a grant about Sugar Hill in Harlem, we consulted with someone who is an English professor at the University of Texas at Arlington. We just wanted to get some ideas and we were all fine on a first name basis until he found out that you had written Beyond Banneker. You may remember and he was like, "Well, I can't call you Erica anymore. You're Dr. Walker. You don't that know how you, <laughs> you don't. That know was how such a changed, shocking moment to me. <laughs> you don't know how you've changed um, people's <laughs> lives in HBCUs and and black mathematicians currently. So those are the things that that also that also happen. And so I'm going to ask a question that I hope will have uh, a chance to uh, to answer." Um, You know, you and I share something else as educators, and that is math and history are always dreaded courses because they're seen as really dry, non-dynamic. And I hope from listening, people realize that there's so many different ways to think about what math is, how people are mathematical thinkers, and the whole notion of combining math with storytelling is really key. And it opens up the world for so many more people to not feel that math is just a set of numbers in a foreign language that can't be accessed. And I know you well enough that this is a good lead into thinking about well, what really inspires your work? I mean, how does one decide this is what I'm going to do? Because you could have been a fantastic accountant. Do you know what I mean? You could have done any number of things with you could be working, you know, for the US government, doing stats, whatever it may be. So what really inspires this work of the type of mathematical thinking and type of mathematical projects that you do?
1: Um, It's such a wonderful question and I could probably talk for an hour about it. So I'm gonna try to rein rein myself in, but I've always loved um, mathematics. And it's not that, um, you know, my parents, great parents, they were very into reading and going to the library. And I think when I showed some interest in mathematics, they were kind of like, oh, that's nice. That's interesting. Um, we'll support that. But the person who, who really supported it um, with some mathematical activity was my neighbor who lived right um, of the next house over. And he was wonderful. He was a a teacher himself. And I I still don't know how this happened. I was too young to remember. But from the time I was three or four years old, he just saw that I had this little mathematical spark. And he would bring workbooks home from, from work, from his work teaching. And he'd give me these notebooks and I'd do my math and do my numbers and I'd get gold stars. And he was also a great cook. And it was just like, it was like a play date for me, even at that young age. So that's kind of where it started. And so... I think the idea that I was always doing math in community and it was always kind of a social thing for me really has influenced how I think about mathematics teaching and learning. So, you know, I went through high school, did well in math throughout there. I, you know, tutored my friends. I tutored neighbors. I tutored family members. Um, I went to college and majored in math. It just kind of continued. So even at difficult moments when, you know, there were moments when the joy honestly was kind of sucked out of math for me. But I always had this reservoir of you know, love for mathematics, and it was sort of natural that I became a teacher. I was a high school mathematics teacher for a few years, and I loved making you know the light bulb spark for people when they understood a concept. I loved it from the time you know I was a high school kid tutoring my friends. I loved it, you know, when I was an adult teaching, teaching young people mathematics. And then I got a little sidetracked as you know academics and researchers tend to do. I went to um Harvard, where we met at the Graduate School of Education. And I got really bitten by the research bug. And um, I had really good faculty mentors there who were definitely saying, oh, you could be a statistician, and you could do this, and you could do that. And there was a contingent that um, wanted me to go into administration, you make a great principal superintendent. So I kind of got pulled away. And Coming full circle, the postdoc at TC was really great because I got placed in the program in mathematics. And it sort of reminded me of my love and interest in helping people see themselves as mathematical persons and to have an affinity and a love for mathematics. I hate when people say oh, I hate math or I'm not a math person. You know that, Callie. I just, I hate it because everyone's a math person and there's so much mathematics in this world and it's so different. You love some aspect of mathematics and maybe you don't know it yet. And it's our job as mathematics educators to get that through to you. So um, when I did that postdoc at TC, I was sort of reconnected with my, my math side and I haven't looked back. And it's been, it's been great.
0: It has been a great ride, but now I know I'm not special. I used to think when you said I was a mathematical person (laughs) that you were singling me out, and now I just realize that everyone, I don't know how I feel about that, but I'll survive it.
1: This is why I have all those mathematical toys and puzzles in my office on my desk. So people just come in and play with them, and they see, oh, because you made a pattern. I love those kinds of conversations that we have.
0: It is, and that's where we work out a lot of ideas, which is something else that I want to just put out there.
1: Mm -hmm. Very true. So
0: we have used up our time very quickly and it has been so much fun and an absolute pleasure to sort of share with the rest of the world, the types of conversations that we have in general. So I want to thank you again for sharing your ideas and your thoughts and your vision. And of course your valuable time.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Callie. This has been great. And, um, It gave me a lot to think about and a lot to uh, continue to be inspired by. You're
0: inspiring. So thank you for doing this podcast. Thanks to those of you who are listening. If you're curious about our next conversation, please visit the UMI webpage and subscribe. The URL is tc.edu forward slash I-U-M-E. And again, you can get a full biography of Dr. Walker and also click on her various publications. I hope that it's opened a new world for everyone about thinking about how we do research, how we create knowledge, and how very human it is. Once again, this is Professor Callie Waite wishing you the very best.